And when you run a, a set of services with an open source mentality, where just like anybody can jump in, and as long as the PR gets reviewed, code can just get committed to that, it just feels like weird ownership boundaries. So Ben, have you ever uh... have you ever worked with other humans? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Working Code, and now your hosts, who wish they were Boolean, so the next time they're wrong, it's only by a bit. Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 72. And on today's show, we're going to talk about wearing too many hats. But first, as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. And it looks like it's my turn to go first. So I'm going to start us off with, you tell me. Is it a triumph or is it a fail? I guess a brief story, a brief synopsis of what happened. I was working on a cloud microservice thing, I guess you could just say on the microservice, and it wasn't doing what I wanted. It's a process that takes, in some cases, a really long time to run. And we were seeing, when when you're working with these things in the cloud, pretty much the only thing that you get to go on is the logs. So I'm trolling through the logs, and the more, I, I spent probably a day and a half to two days looking at this, just pulling my hair out, trying to figure out what's going on. And the more that I looked at it, the more I was feeling... Like every time I made one request, two requests were happening. <laughs> when you like, when you look mm. at the logs, you're like, "This doesn't make sense. Why are we getting two of these things?" Classic Bogo. Yeah, <laughs> and so I mean, long story short, I, I was right. How do I explain this? So we're using the Java SDK to invoke a lambda directly over a socket, not a web socket, but a socket connection, and the default socket timeout for a direct Lambda invocation is 50 seconds on the Java SDK. And we just didn't realize that when we like wired the service up in order to be able to execute our Lambdas. And I guess we hadn't run into it before and it wasn't really a problem. Well, so when you've got a, a process that could run for like a half hour and it's doing big database queries and then 50 seconds into it, you give up on waiting for a response and you retry it, then all of a sudden you start to run into deadlocks and extreme database CPU and memory consumption. And this was a really bad problem. Like I said, I worked on it for like two days and ultimately what it turned out to be was just increase the timeout. And so it would stop giving up and retrying. And it was just so frustrating because it didn't even occur to me for that two days that I was working on it. Like I had this feeling, it feels like when I make one request, there are two running. And I kept going, but that's impossible. And it turns <laughs> out it wasn't impossible. And and I just, to me, it was like, if that's the way you feel, when you have a feeling that just, it doesn't seem right, but it feels like something, a particular weird thing is going on, there's a good chance that it is. Why was it timing out? It was, so the job was just taking longer than 50 seconds to execute. So it wasn't mm -hmm. responding to the, the socket in time. And the Java SDK by default says, well, if you haven't responded within 50 seconds, I'm going to give up. That's the timeout. And then it gives up, but it has a reach. Arbitrary number. Yeah. Why not one minute? I, don't ask me, man. I'm not a Java developer. The But so it by default, it's 50 seconds. And then by default, it will retry, I think, three times. Mm -hmm. And so it's not only sometimes was it trying twice, but sometimes it was trying three times. And yeah, it was just bad. So, <laughs> but eventually we figured it out. And so here's where maybe it turns back toward uh, a triumph a little bit. I did fix it. And the fix was sort of writing Java code, which I am not a fan of doing. I had to write a couple of lines of Java code, but I got Copilot to do it for me. Oh, wow. So 
Yeah, it was, well, so- GitHub Copilot. Yeah, yeah, GitHub Copilot. The thing that drives me nuts about trying to use a Java SDK from a CFML application is that most of the Java libraries that I've tried to use in that fashion have poor documentation for somebody who isn't an everyday Java user. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh, you just need to pass in one of these client configuration class instances. And it's like, but where is that client configuration class instance? How do I instantiate it? And what does it need? What are its arguments? And I was able to figure it out, but I did like var custom config equals, you know, new AWS dot and then Copilot kicked in and it was like, oh, here, let me gift you. I read the rest of your code around here <laughs> and it, it figured it out. And I just had to, to populate the one, the timeout parameter that I wanted to change and it Crazy. popped in and it was awesome. I need to get on this Copilot thing. So did you ever end up finding some sort of a timeout entry in the logs? No, it wasn't. It, nothing in particular was actually timing out. It was just that the SDK said, that's it. Time has run out for a, a response to come back. I'm going to retry. Gotcha. So the retries were eventually working. So the overall request didn't really fail, quote unquote. Right. It's possible that it was putting something out in like the system log or the application log or something that I just wasn't checking. I was look, concerning myself with the logs that I generate from within the microservice. Yeah. Because yeah. that's where it seemed like things were going wrong. And it didn't even occur to me to look at the logs of the caller. So. Hmm. I'll tell you, timeouts to me feel like black magic. I never know what a reasonable timeout is. And for, for example, like in Cold Fusion, if you want to lock, put a, an exclusive lock around some code, you can give it a timeout, which is how long it'll sit and wait for a lock. And I feel like you know, these computers are doing millions of operations a second, and the lowest timeout you can give it is a second. And I always feel like this should not have to wait more than a second for anything that I'm doing inside this lock. But then inevitably something like garbage collection happens and, and the thing freezes up or I, I don't know, or, or like making API requests where you can give it a timeout for how long it should wait. I just never know what to pick. I always like <laughs> arbitrarily pick five seconds and it's like not based on anything at all. It's very frustrating. It's based on how long do I think I want to wait? <laughs> well, I think that's not too far from the truth. I think in that situation, I would base it on what is a reasonable user experience. At what mm. point should mm. at what point should we tell the user, oh, okay, sorry, we waited as long as we thought was reasonable, and it didn't get a response, so try again or yeah, yeah, let yeah. us know or whatever. But that's I think you're right. I think that's the key that comes down to it is how do you what is the experience of the failed request? Because if you look at the distribution of times for a response for an API call and you're P95 or something, right? Like 95% of all requests fall under Mm -hmm. this boundary is like 200 milliseconds. But then you get some long tail where it's the P99 will be like seven seconds, something like that. I'm just making up numbers here. And so on one hand, you could think, then I should just let it go. Like if most people are getting super snappy things, like why even have a timeout that's low if the one that is seven seconds eventually returns anyway? Like why bother kill it? Mm-hmm. But the why bother kill it becomes, well, what if I kill it and I can do a retry or maybe that's hits a different distributed node or something, or I give a better message to the user. And it's like, that's the thing that I never have ready to go is the better user experience. It's like the timeout selection is not based on how can I handle this gracefully. It's more just like the, I got to put a timeout on this call. I'm always wondering, sh- should I do a try that, and I know it's going to take long, 
but by the time the user retries again, enough time would have passed and I'm caching the prior. Mm. Typically, it's like you're hitting a data, but I'm caching the prior thing. So by the time they retry in human time, it will have been cached. And then when they do it this time, it'll be instant. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the uh, this has been a popular phrase I've been hearing a lot in some of the client-side caching technologies is like stale while revalidate. And I think it's this idea that you're... F- like this request will always come from the cache if it's available, but it will implicitly trigger an asynchronous request to get the yep. next value so that the next time you make the request, it's up to date. I, I think sometimes that's in the context of more of a reactive application where you'll end up rendering the, the fresh data once it's there. So I don't know if yeah. that applies everywhere, but... I don't know if you've heard of the new framework Remix. It's, yeah, yeah. It's in your and favorite React one I can see Dodds, right? He's been hot on that. He, yeah, he's been publishing. He works for them now, pushing a lot. Yeah, he works for them now. Uh, it's from the people who created React Router. But I think that's sort of their default posture for a lot of their stuff is the stale while revalidate approach. I wanted to ask you, have you seen the, the big angry pink unicorn on GitHub? No. No? No? Oh, so, the uh, angry one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, it's their error page, right? You, it's either that one or the Octocat falling down a ravine like in yes. a, out of a Roadrunner cartoon. The the unicorn always kind of surprises me how fast they return that to you. So it, like if they're having issues, which everybody does occasionally, and I'll get a response in like, I don't know, one second, 700 milliseconds, something like that. And it's like, page timed out waiting for a response. And I'm like, but... This is a normal response for my app. (laughs) (laughs) No, right? You have a really high bar to clear uh, if you're giving up that early. Like, I I mean, hey, I I love it. I love that they're that on top of it and they provide such a great service that they can consider like a one second way too long to wait and and give up at that point. I think that's a really great experience for me, the user of their application. Just go ahead and set all your timeouts to one second. (laughs) (laughs) If it works for GitHub, it's good enough for you. Yeah. I think they have a status page somewhere that shows the latencies of a lot of their endpoints. Pretty sure it's Mm status.github.com. Oh, maybe. Yeah, the angry unicorn is great. Uh, It's it's one of those things like operational readiness. It just has like an umbrella term. I feel like it's not a very nuanced thing. Nuance is not the right word. It's like there's not a lot of graduation in how good you are at it. It's like you're mediocre. And then the next step is like phenomenal. It's right. like it, mm-hmm. it feels like there's not people who are just like After you pretty invest, good. And your investment starts to get into the millions. You're like, now you're phenomenal. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, there's people who do it super, super, super well. I think that's going to tie in nicely with our topic today. So let's yeah. come back to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think that's enough about me. How about you, Tim? What do you got going on? Yeah, it's enough about you, Adam. Quit hogging <laughs> the show. <laughs> So you were kind of ambiguous if it was a triumph or a fail. I have a failump, which I stole from Ben. Um, <laughs> so I've been working in stored procedures like for the first time in maybe five years. I mean, I used to work mm-hmm. in stored procedures all the time, building stored procedures, debugging them. And then just because of changing roles and stuff and the, the type of product I was working on, it's like I haven't really had to work in stored procedures. I mean, our Postgres database has zero stored procedures. Our MySQL database has a few stored procedures. But I've been writing them and it's like, it's a failure because I, I could not remember how to do basic things. <laughs> I was mm. like, how do you do an if statement? Do I need a begin and an end block? I do remember there was something about that. 
And so I'm Googling and going to like MS SQL because this is my Microsoft SQL tutorials. And I feel like such a noob, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I see like, okay, all right. I'm just double checking. And I, I probably wrote 15 store procedures today. When, and once I got going, it all started coming back to me. But it's like, I felt like a real failure that, you know, the skill that I was like, I felt six years ago, I was like really good at it just... I was no longer good at because time has passed and your your memory buffer pushes the, does garbage collection and pushes all that out of your head. Oh yeah, I delete stuff from memory real fast. Yeah, yeah. Because I do have I don't know if it's my saying, but I do say it a lot. It's like I I, I don't memorize anything I can Google. Yep. So I, I don't try to keep that stuff in my head. So I, I guess maybe that's a triumph in the fact that it's like I don't keep all that stuff in my head. I don't have to be a uh, a store procedure expert all my life just when I need it and once you start doing the muscle memory does come back pretty quickly yeah, so yeah. I think it's a triumph in that regard so okay I'll give you that much I was I, you were describing all these things about your your recent experience and I'm sitting here going but what about this is at all ambiguous that it might be a triumph <laughs> or might be a failure to me this just sounds like all fail <laughs> not a comment about you particularly just sure. this particular Thing. The fact that I cranked out 15 in a day it tells you that I, I and it's these weren't good. simple store procedures. It was just, I, I needed like three or four Google searches, yeah. you know, how, how do I do a common table expression? I forgot about that. It's like, it's just syntax stuff. I, I knew they were there. So why are you suddenly dropping into storage procedures? What's the constraint here? It's a constraint. It's just sort of the use case. So we have an event driven thing. So every day we're going to send out a, a ton of emails or text messages to uh, it's about the payment stuff. You talked about payments. Yeah, this on is a for actually for, it was for the insurance side. So your policy is uh, canceled. It's going to cancel if you don't pay now. And so there's, uh, I didn't want to do just ad hoc queries. I wanted to build a store procedure and then just have my API call the store procedure, take the data and put it in JSON. So that's the reason I'm doing it. It just made more sense to have it in there rather than just writing ad hoc SQL inside of the code. Interesting. Who was I talking to you or was it Adam Cameron? Somebody was talking about not writing SQL as CF query, but like writing it as strings so that you could test the strings. Because me and him, because I do that, I do that as well. Because that way you do that with a stored procedure, or or is that not possible with a stored procedure? No, because I mean you wouldn't be writing that inside inside the app, right? You just be calling the stored procedure, but you could have call the stored procedure with with certain inputs, and they always should result with certain outputs. You could do that. Gotcha. You could do like a playback of what it's supposed to. I gotcha. Gotcha. I still don't feel like I have ever run across a reason that store procedures were absolutely required other than by policy. Yeah. Like, uh, well, this all, this also sort of dovetails with the topic of the show too, because it used to be, I mean, I say used to be like I've been around a long time, but there are, I'm sure there are places where stored procedures, part of the reason you had to have stored procedures is because that was the database administrator. I'm doing an air quotes. Mm. Like the D, the DB admin was the one who wrote the stored procedures because regular programmers couldn't be trusted We're not to good do enough. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now everybody's wearing all the hats. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. You say that, all the hats. So I ran into a weird thing and I still haven't figured it out. Tomorrow I'm going to take a crack at figuring out. So in the stored procedure, I, I don't like having the actual store procedure where it's maybe doing a select statement, having any sort of hard-coded like numbers or values. Yeah. So a- everything I want to be at active or at status is good or whatever. So I, mm-hmm. I build all the the variables and then put them in the SQL statement to select it. And for some reason, there was one field. The only thing different, the only thing I know about is I did, I had newly created an index on this one field. And if I 
in the store procedure, if I used uh, the variable at status active and ran it, it took, I don't know how long it took because I stopped it because it was taking like two minutes. I changed that into a hard-coded zero and it was three seconds. Hmm. And I don't know, I don't know why. It kind of blew my, I sat there just Hmm. toggling it back and forth going, this makes no sense. I have no yeah, yeah. clue why this makes a difference to to the query parser that it's a variable and it's going to take forever. So I'll dig into that tomorrow. But it's, the, perf- uh, yeah. the performance of databases is a very arcane profession sort of thing. Like it's black magic sometimes. Yeah, because the only reason I even created the index is I ran the query execute on it to show me, and I saw like 70% of the time, because I didn't want, everything else was coming back within like milliseconds, and this one query that was only slightly different was taking three to four seconds. I'm like, that's too long. So I tried to optimize it. It said these fields were indexed. I threw the index on there, and now it took longer if it was a, if it was a, a variable. But it didn't take longer if it was a hard-coded number. That's weird. So what you're talking about is magic numbers, right? So if you're reading a query or (laughs) that's the technical or whatever, idiomatic name for them, just a a random integer or whatever appears in your code. It's like, but where did that come from? Right. Right. So I I don't like looking at a query and going, if something equal, if if this equals one, then do this. I'm like, what does one mean? Right. What what in the, you know, give me, explain to me what that means. So I like, I. Right. So by switching it to a variable, you can give that variable an expressive name and then reading the code makes perfect sense. Yep. It gives you context. Yep. So that's me. How about you, Ben? Hopefully you got a real triumph of failure. A grimace. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going with a yet to be determined because I don't know if this is going to be a success or a failure in the long run. This is like a magic eight ball. So So we've had this longstanding problem at work where we generate PDFs on the server side using uh, Cold Fusion technology. And if you're in a small project, it works pretty well and it's historically worked very well, but we have some customers who have these just whoppers of projects where they've got hundreds of things inside them that we need to output into a PDF. And then trying to generate that PDF on the server side just will, it'll eat up all the memory or it'll just take forever and then it usually gets terminated prematurely because of a deployment or something like that. It's really something that should have ultimately been split out into its own service, but it never was and there's reasons that it can't at this point. But I I have been for years, like literally years, been trying to think about how to improve the processing of these PDFs on the server side so that they're more consistent even for larger projects. And the other day I was like, you know what? I mean, what if I come at this from a completely different angle? What if instead of trying to generate the PDF on the server, I try to push that generation to the client side and just bypass the server altogether? Because then it's the user's memory and their browser technologies, and maybe that'll be okay. And I'm sitting there thinking about it. I was doing some Googling and thinking about the there's some JavaScript libraries that can help you do PDF generation. And then I was thinking about tax time because I, I was just filling out tax documents just recently. And I realized that every time I have to generate a PDF from some statement inside of a bank account, I'll just do the print feature and my printer has a save as PDF. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is that is that just on Chrome? Because I only use Chrome for the most part. So I started looking and it existed Firefox and Safari. And then one of the guys on my team who's got a Windows gaming machine, I asked him to check and he looked in all the various browsers on the Windows machines and they all have some form of print to PDF or save mm-hmm. as PDF. It's like, a relatively modern edition, right? I, I, like within yeah, yeah. the last five I, years. I think so. I think so. 
And uh, but it's great because it's basically using the browser's rendering engine and just like magic PDF. So I was like, it's not a great PDF though. It's not a. It's it's like pretty good. It, it usually has visually. like the, the URL at the bottom, doesn't it? There's settings. They all have settings. We can turn off. You okay. can turn those things off. And yeah. I'm not saying it's the best user experience. This is why this is yet to be determined. But I'm like, maybe I can just give people a print friendly version of this document and guide them into the. Now just hit print and do save as PDF and kablamo, you have this PDF that's much more efficient than the one that you couldn't even generate because the server side kept crashing. It sounds like passing the book. It's well, which uh, it, it absolutely is, but I think that it's a very clever approach. And I think whether or not it's going to work depends entirely on the audience, yeah, the users yeah. that are going to be using this. And it also, I think I, I have some concerns based entirely on the content, right? It, so this is your Envision stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so we're talking about like application mockups or whatever that sort right, of thing, right. right? Okay. Because so we we have a similar effort, I guess I'll say, going on right now, but ours is generating receipts for donations. Mm-hmm. And so having a user fiddle with the amount that they donated before they hit the print button, right? If they can pop open the DevCon oh, yeah. app, then that's a big deal. So, but, and, and so we need to be able to give them a, a PDF that's watermarked and oh, has the university seal on it and all that stuff. So, and it has to be flattened to a single raster layer, right? So you can't mm. copy and edit the text and stuff. So I'm a little glad I don't have to work on that. But at the same time, the guy who is working on it has gotten to touch a whole lot of really neat stuff. I think well, he's got I, like a Lambda function running and it's uh, in a container and it's calling out to like a postscript to to do the printing to PDF <laughs> and, and then like returning. Awesome. It's really interesting what he's doing and all this in a Lambda function is pretty cool. I mean, ultimately, right, I'm working in with some, I'm working inside some pretty significant constraints because ultimately, if I could just factor out the PDF functionality, even to its own set of, to its own service, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of microservices, but this is the kind of thing exactly that I think should be in its own service. It's very CPU intensive. It's very RAM intensive. If I could have that in its own thing and jack up the RAM or do something where it's like now spawning off to a headless Chrome or something to have the browser do the rendering, but on the server side still, then we'd be cooking with the gas. But the problem is I'm the guy, I'm the guy on the legacy team and there's not that kind of time to get it done. And there's also a bunch of cost constraints about we have some data isolation issues where I can't just have a centralized service that would do this because I can't I have customers and I can't send their data to the centralized service, not because of security, but because of contractual obligations. They're on-prem. Yes, something like that. So it's like I'd have to give them individual versions of all of these things. And now it's an infrastructure problem and a cost problem and and a platform problem. And it's like the the best way is not the the workable way, unfortunately. Have you ever taken a look at uh, Apache PDF Box? It's a Java PDF library. It's a lot more performant. Yeah, I've, I think I've looked at it before. I mean, there was at one point where I was trying to find a whole bunch of different solutions, but I, I think based on your situation, where the, you're the legacy app, it's not going to live forever. Getting it done and moving on to the next thing is probably more valuable than getting it perfect. That's how I feel. I, I think you're justified in pushing it down to the user. I think you can probably improve that user experience some, like load the page, pop up a little in-page modal that says, all right, I'm about to hit print when you hit okay. 
you know, so you can click the print button for them. Um, yeah. And this is what you need to do. And if you really wanted to go all out, you could like do browser detection says, okay, you're on a- edge and you show them like a screenshot oh, of what, way what, better than what I was thinking, <laughs> right? You show them a screenshot <laughs> and this is where you need to click, right? That that's a, that's a opening a big can of worms too. So, but even I, if you just said, Hey, I'm about to open the print dialogue. Don't worry. It's just, this is the thing you asked for. Save as PDF and you'll get what you want. Or just print it. <laughs> Kill some trees. <laughs> I mean, the, the silly thing, and I'm not saying this to disparage any of our customers, obviously. CF print. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but the... Only works on the server. <laughs> the, the things that they're putting in the PDFs are these mock-ups of prototypes, and they don't fit well on an right. A4 or like a letter. Yeah, I, don't yeah. know, I can't remember that. So, but, so it's not like, it's not even like they're doing this to have a really high quality of something. It's like they have a process the process requires them to have a document representation of this thing for regulatory purposes or workflow purposes or like, I don't know, for whatever reasons that I don't even fully understand. So it's like, we just need to satisfy that. And if we can do that in a way that the server doesn't crash, I feel like maybe everyone could just get on board. I don't know, but it's a tough one. It's a tough problem. So that's me. So I have yet to, I, I have it. I have some metrics on it. Both the old version and the old server side generation of PDFs still exists. That's used clearly very heavily today. I have this version also available, used much, much more lightly, but it's uh, it's new and it's fresh. So we'll see where it goes. So it's a yet to be determined triumph or failure. I'd say triumph in that I thought outside the box. But so as benevolent dictator for life of triumphs and fails, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and declare yours a triumph. I like it. Nice. And Tim, yours is a failure because stored <laughs> procedures suck and I have yet to be convinced otherwise. And I'm still on the fence about my own. I don't know. You guys can tell me. I mean, you get cool stuff going on technology wise. So I think yeah. that's a triumph. Oh, okay. So let me tack this on to this happened like hours ago, same project. Right. And when I left off, we had the, the lambdas running and everything's honky dory. I actually, no, uh, I'm sorry. This is a different project, a similar stack, but it's slightly different project. This one, the, there's a SQS queue triggering some stuff to happen. And we were getting errors at first when I tried to set it up in QA. But as soon as I like fix the errors, like it's like uh, your uh, credentials are wrong. So you can't access the database or whatever. Right. So that sort of thing. As soon as I fix that, the logs are entirely empty. Right. So it's all pumping to CloudWatch. <laughs> it creates log streams and log groups as necessary, but everything is just 100% empty. Nice. And I, it was like, okay, I must have done something weird and wrong. So I fixed a couple of other little problems I can figure out are, are wrong along the way. I get through a 100% working test today, like a sort of an end to end test in QA. And still the logs are empty when it's when it's working. And <laughs> that's when I realized that I'm using that debug module that I love so much. And it requires you to set an environment variable to turn mm. on the logs. And it's just, I was working with another guy. And when I said it out loud that, oh, it's missing the environment variable, it turns on the logs. We both just cracked up. <laughs> like, <laughs> duh. Fail. So, oh, yeah. That's funny. So let me go ahead and throw this out here now. Carol couldn't be with us tonight. She's got jury duty. So doing her civic duty and missing out on Absolutely. a podcast. For a murder case. <laughs> she won't tell us which one. Bomb, no bomb, fair. bomb. Well, no, she wouldn't tell us because she was in jury duty when I asked her. So Yeah. yeah. Well, I, think I don't the, think she would tell us anyway. Yeah, it's supposed to gag orders or whatnot. She'll tell us. <laughs> After it's done. <laughs> Hypothetically. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Okay, cool. So our topic today comes to us from 
uh, a listener sending in a question. So our question comes from Mingo in the Netherlands. Hi, Mingo. Thanks, Mingo. So here's his question. Do developers today wear too many hats? Does our work suffer for it by spreading yourself too thin? And how many different tasks is too many? Mm. I thought that's a really good question. Lots to discuss there. Yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with the idea of wearing too many hats. I, on one hand, I think it would be so nice to have one hat on and just go super deep on that thing and jam out on that thing all day long and not have to worry about everything else. But then I can't get past this idea that the more hats that I wear, the more I can sort of get done at work. Because the reality is taking some story or task or epic from ideation to completion Usually you just have to touch a lot of things, whether it's new database stuff or some design stuff and some front end stuff and some back end stuff and task prioritization with some project management, some cross team communication. And like if the more comfortable you are with all those things, the more likely it is that you can actually just get that thing done. So it, it can be super overwhelming though. And it's like I look over the fence at the people who are just jamming out in CSS and JavaScript all day and I'm like, ah. Oh, that's a nice life. You must really enjoy things. Like, is it though? Like you're working on, like you're on client side stuff. You never get paged. Like you never caused an outage. Oh <laughs> right? like yeah. You never deployed a query that took down a server. Good for you. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on how I feel about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for me, it comes down to, I guess, a combination of personal preference and ability. And I don't even know how to describe it, but like, I guess it's very similar to what you're saying, Ben. The if you specialize, then you can go really deep, and I think that gets to the does your does our work suffer for for it by mm-hmm. spreading ourselves too thin? If you only ever do JavaScript, you don't have to worry about CSS, you don't have to worry about design, you don't have to worry about SQL, any of that. If you do JavaScript and and API access, then you're going to get really good at that, and you're going to write really clean code and have good tests for it. <laughs> and versus if you have to do the JavaScript and the SQL and the design and the CSS and the what's the uh, DevOps and the meetings and the, the project yep. management and everything, then I think, yeah, your work does suffer for it. But I think, like you were saying, Ben, there's a trade-off. It's hard to, because I ultimately want to be really good at stuff. And I know that there's a limit on how deep I can go on anything. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a failure. It's like a, almost like a nostalgic regret. Like, oh, I could have lived that life. <laughs> that, would, that would have been nice. Multi, multi-universe Ben. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, back-end only Ben. He's yeah. living a, he's living large. Or, you know, like front-end only Ben. He's having a good time. Or like Ben that went into management. Like, oh, you know what? He's a force multiplier. Good for you, manager Ben. <laughs> you really think it depends on your personality. I know I'm the kind of person who likes to know something about everything. Mm-hmm. I know, Ben, you introduced me to this phrase, a T-shaped developer, mm-hmm. right? So the T, you know, you're kind of, you have some knowledge to a, to a certain depth at the top about a lot of things, but there's like that the T part that goes down deep, you have a, a strong knowledge of, uh, of a very specific thing. And I, I kind of like that. I, I, I don't like not knowing how something works, particularly it's like, and I run into this, in the organization. So if you have teams that everyone knows their jobs and everyone just does their jobs and everyone understands what, what's going on and stuff gets done, you can just hand something off to someone and really just they, that's got the specs, they can read the ticket or whatever and, and they do their stuff. But sometimes it's like there's issues 
well, for us, I don't know every organization, but for sometimes it's like the programmers and the people who deal with the virtual machines and the DNS and the certificates and the infrastructure kind of stuff, as we call it, there's a disconnect. And so I've been in both those worlds. I ran those, both those departments and having that knowledge, I feel like I can bridge that gap. So that has always made me want to know, I I don't want to just say that's not my problem. Every part of the app is my problem to a degree. Certain parts, 100% of it is my problem, but other parts, maybe 20% is my problem, but I have to know about it. And that's just my personality. Other people are just quite happy to just know about one, not even some technology, just one maybe portion of an app if it's big enough and just they're the expert on that. They don't care about anything else in it, but that would just, that would drive me nuts to be working in the same thing. I like the variety. I I like a little change of pace and not dealing. I I actually, you know, enjoyed working the store procedures. I haven't, even though you hate them, Adam, (laughs) I hadn't worked in them in so long. I haven't built the, these complex kind of data calls in, in years. Like, Oh wow, this is pretty cool. So yeah, I just need variety. Otherwise I just get really bored. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's just another programming language to, to take it back to the store procedures. I think what gets to me about them is that the ecosystem for them is not as fully developed as yeah. other models. There's no tooling. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard to get them into version control and deploying them is you know, iffy, whatever sort of thing. Not that, not that they are difficult to, to deploy, but that it's a very manual process. Yeah, and I mean, we, we have all that automated. I mean, ever since... Microsoft SQL came out with the create or replace, create or alter statement. It's mm-hmm. really made version control a whole lot easier. Hmm. That's for tables, like table schemas you're talking for about? For anything. Create or replace mm-hmm. store procedures is what we're, I was using oh, today. Oh, oh, oh. So. We had talked about this many episodes ago, I think actually based on another listener question about the, like how much DevOps should you know? And I think that this is an area where people are forced to wear multiple hats. And, and I think the work does suffer. And because uh, containerization creates this sort of weird abstraction around what's actually being run, not like that your code is being run, but like how it's actually being executed and what the infrastructure is. And if you don't understand how containers work and how containers fit into like a larger deployment ecosystem, it can be very confusing as to why something's not running well or like their CPU is maxing out and like you don't realize it's because like, your container was barely given any CPU and like you didn't even know that was a thing. And it's just the technology landscape for complex systems now sort of forces you to understand more than you, I don't want to say should, but like more than you used to have to know yeah. in order to get things to run well. That's an interesting thought. So often I think we hear about like somebody joining the workforce today has so much more to learn than we did oh when we God, joined the workforce. So much. But I think that this very closely ties to the amount of hats that we're expected to wear. And I think that is very much because we are pretty far along in our career and senior developer or higher sort of people. And I wouldn't expect a first year junior developer to be able and willing. I'd be happy if they were, but I wouldn't expect them to be able and willing to pick up DevOps stuff and all the little stuff that goes along with my projects. So I just wish I knew it. So I hesitate to talk about Carol on a show that she's not here, but I, it's not a negative thing about Carol. It's just uh, she provides the context, right? So we talk about how we, the four of us are so different. We work at different companies. We have different roles. When Carol talks about life at her company, it's so it's like a culture shock to me because she works at yeah. such a big company. And so much process. Exactly. Red tape and and 
project management goes into it. Whereas in my company, we're five people all in. And it's like, okay, here's the project. Uh, When can you get it done? Oh, three days? Cool. And that's in production three, four days later. Right, right. And and that's everything. That's the meetings. That's the design. That's the tests. That's the, the coding. It's the QA. It's everything. And I get the feeling that at Carol's company, three or four days is like enough time for them to have the meetings to hash out what should be in the the feature, right? right? Like, and I could, I don't think I could go back to that sort of environment. I've worked at companies that big before and I I think I've just become too accustomed to the velocity at my current place. Mm. And I think that kind of ties into the number of hats thing, right? So like, because we're so small, it gives us that ability to be so agile, but it also requires that we all can kind of play every position on the field. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I do think as you as the organization gets bigger, you have more and more specialization, right? Yeah. Just out of the nature of it. Another downside that I think of wearing hats, though, too many hats, is... Hair loss? You sort of... <laughs> you sort of That's have a, myth, a, by the way. A, a curse of knowledge, meaning that a little bit about a lot of things. So I think to some degree... You don't feel the need to think outside the box or to explore new options because you're like, I sort of have the tools that I can use to get this done. And I think back to when I first started to learn about, or not learn about, but hear about GraphQL. And people are raving about, oh, this is so great. Like people can just get data from the server and like they don't have to deal with the back end people. And as someone who is both back end and front end, I'm like, I don't get it. Like, just get the data. Like, how is that hard? And they're like, no, it's like you can just write the queries on the client side and you can send to the server and the server just gives you the data. And I'm like, just write the queries that give you the data. Like, I don't understand what your problem is. Like, where's your friction? <laughs> and it's like literally months would go by when I started to hear about GraphQL. And someone was finally like, I don't know how to write SQL. I don't have access to the database. I'm like, oh, I get it now. You like literally can't write those queries. It's not that you don't want to. But it's like, because I come at it from a, I can dabble in this and I can dabble in that. Like it, it, there's no, like, it doesn't occur to me that there's like a newer, more efficient way to do something. And I'm not saying that GraphQL is necessarily a newer, more efficient way to do something. I'm just saying like, it's a new thing that it would not have occurred to me to do because I have the quote unquote curse of knowledge of how to gather data on the server side. So I think there's this, just like you're less open-minded. Yeah. Speaking about curse of knowledge, to paraphrase Spider-Man. You know, with, <laughs> with great knowledge comes great responsibility. And there's something to be said for saying, you know what? I don't know anything about that. I'm out. Don't yeah. call me. Don't hit me up. <laughs> I, I have to have to put in a correction. Sorry, that was Uncle Ben. For the Spider-Man right. movies. I was saying Spider-Man said it. <laughs> you said you were quoting Spider-Man. I'm sorry. I just wanted to be the correct. The movie. <laughs> hey, hey. Just phrase uh, better next time. <laughs> it, it was also Aunt May. I don't think so. Yes, she did. She did the latest movie. You haven't seen it? Which which one? Oh, uh, Far From Home? Yeah. No, I haven't seen that one yet. So she's okay. I won't spoil it. I haven't seen it yet either. All right. She said that. She did say that. (laughs) Okay. But a very important scene. But anyway, yeah. I mean, so like if you're like, I don't work in this section, I I can't help you because if Mm -hmm. if I know something about something and there's an issue, I feel obligated to help out. That's just how I am. Like, I'm going to jump, I'm going to stop what I'm doing, I'm going to help you out. Even if like I have a deadline or I'm working on something important, it's like that it just that's how I feel. So to be able to say honestly, say without any g- internal guilt, I- I'm sorry, I don't know anything about that part of the program. I, I can't help you is refreshing. Yeah, I agree with that 100. percent I love being able to say 
I am not your guy. I do not know anything about what you just said. That was actually, so when my company was just me and Steve, the this product that I work on, I was the guy who knew about 100% of the things because I wrote all the code <laughs> for this particular product. And hiring other people and like sharing responsibility, it was such a double-edged sword because it's like, I have to let them take control of parts of my baby. Mm. And mm. I do code review and it's like, you have to sit there and go, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not going to comment on that. It's fine. It's just style. But at the same time, like that was the, there was some initial hurt giving up that control. But then you hear it years later, it's so freeing. Like you guys are talking about, there are just parts of the application that I don't know anything about. And that gives me joy. Mm-hmm. I recently gave access. There was this project. It was a project. It was a small project, uh, just an API, small API. That I'm the only one who wrote on it for the past three years. And recently, I've started opening it up. We've, we've hired some more people, and I've opened it up to some new people. And they started doing pull requests. And so I looked at the pull request. It looked okay, but then actually, when it, there was an error that came up in the lower environments that. I didn't get caught in uh, dip in lower in the local, and they're like, "Oh, we need to fix this error. This is an urgent error." And then I'm like, "I see an error that you just introduced. This is," <laughs> but I didn't bring that up. I'm like, I don't want to. They're getting used to seeing some other people muck around in the stuff that like has been my 100. It's, it's only me in there, and now the other people's fingers are touching it. It's it's a dirty feeling. Yo, can we side quest for a second here? Sure. <laughs> ben needs a minute. <laughs> need ben a minute. needs a minute. So this is something that never quite sits right with me. And I think it's because I get too emotionally attached to code. But I I think there's also a philosophical conversation to have here, which is at work, we often talk about running teams as sort of like an open source model where, yeah, a team might own a certain number of services. But if another team needs to change those services, like they should feel free to come in and open PRs to, to change those services. And there's something that has never quite sat right with me about that because I just, like, I want to own the code and I want my team to own the code and I want the code that's in the service that we own to be, like, part of our subconscious and to have instincts for when a, an incident happens or we see a change in the graphs or we see things start to show up in the error logs, like we should all have this sense of like, oh yeah, we wrote that code. So we have a good sense of where that might be coming from. And when you run a, a set of services with an open source mentality, where just like anybody can jump in. And as long as the PR gets reviewed, code can just get committed to that. It just feels like weird ownership boundaries. So Ben, have you ever uh, have you ever worked with other humans? <laughs> <laughs> that's not a bad question to start with, but that's not what I was going to ask. <laughs> better you than better you say it than him. So I was going to ask: Have you ever like been the lead maintainer on a somewhat large open source project where you are getting? Poor, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I could do it. Honestly, like emotionally, I don't think I could do it. So it's a strange phenomenon. I have the lightest of experience in that field with Taffy. There have been, God bless them, maybe a dozen or two dozen people that have put in a pull request or two over time. And I'm immensely grateful for them. And every now and then I'll have to be like, I don't think this is a good addition to the product. You're free to create your own fork and use it for your company or whatever with that change. But I'm not going to accept that into the project. Or I've asked people to reconsider an implementation, do it slightly Mm -hmm. differently sort of thing. So when you're describing like company sort of services, and I use that term as a, 
I guess, a business service more than a technology service, right? Sure, like sure. It may be a technical thing, but it's a product offered by this area of the business. I like the idea of treating it as open source and allowing people throughout the company to make changes. But I think that it has to come, it has to start from a discussion, right? You should never get a pull request without any warning, right? Like you should never, just like you should never be pulled into your office, your boss's office and find out at your yearly review that you're doing terrible, right? You should see it coming. (laughs) There should be warning signs. And so if somebody wants to make a a significant change to your project, there should be an issue first where they like bring up the, the question and, discuss it with you. I look at it from the opposite side, Ben. And so I've been in a situation where I have my set of stuff that's all for payments. And then I have an internal company's repositories that are pulling from those. And they're not experts on my stuff, but, and I have a fair amount of familiarity with their stuff. I just feel it's lazy for me if there's an issue to say, hey, you guys are not doing something correctly on your side and it's causing issues you know, with our mm-hmm. payments, fix it. And I know that's going to take a long time. So my natural reaction is just, I'll go create a PR to go say, all right, here's what you need to do. Please review this. If you don't agree with it, you can certainly try to come up with your own solution, but here's the problem I'm trying to solve. I, I just feel that I know they kind of own the code, their team, but it's like, I feel I like I should you. at least I take a, a college try at fixing it for them because they may not realize on my side, what's going on. So, but, but I kind of get what, I get what you're saying too. There's also, and I know we're way off topic here, but. Hey, it's our show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I will sometimes try to plan something out. Like I, I have an idea and instead of just jumping directly into code, I'll actually try to open up an Epic and in Jira and start to write out some tickets and start to actually spend some thought time about how I want to put this together. And maybe it'll take a couple of hours, maybe it'll take a couple of days, depending on how in depth I want to go. And then every now and then I'm like, okay, now it's time to write code. And I get like 10 lines of code into it. I'm like, yeah, none of this is going to work. Or like, <laughs> this it's like, it's totally not going to like, now that I'm writing the code and like my fingers are on the keyboard, it's like it changes the mental model. And now I'm thinking about it differently and I'm remembering, oh, but I have this other code over here that maybe I can refactor so that I can reuse it here in a way that couldn't have been reused before. And it's like, unless you're the one writing the code in the system that you've been maintaining, like, do you have those moments of insight? And if you don't, like, if you're just doing uh, PR reviews, it's like, I I don't know. Well, this is why it needs to come up in an issue firsthand. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I just, I have, I I mean, it's ultimately, it's very possible that I'm completely off base here. And it's just because I'm very emotionally attached to the code. And that's end of story. But I, I... are you going to have like a funeral for the code when the legacy system goes away? Okay. I'm going to have one of those uh, those pyres you set and like push out into the <laughs> push river. Push out to sea and light <laughs> take, on fire. Take a bow and arrow. Yeah, exactly. Take a bow and arrow with a flame on it. Then let it. <laughs> oh man! A little SD card in your sink on a yeah. <laughs> a little pour, boat made of toilet paper. Pour forty out for the homies. <laughs> oh, oh man! Goodness. Oh man! Yeah, so I mean, as far as this hats things go, I mean, I, I just honestly, Mingo, I think it depends. It depends on your personality, depends on your organization, it depends on the size of it. It, it. it totally depends. If you feel if you feel too stretched, though, then maybe that's a conversation you need to have with somebody. One thing that's interesting. So I listen to a bunch of podcasts and technology not to, podcasts. Not to break. Okay. <laughs> I'm kind of a big listener. <laughs> uh, I listen to a bunch of technology podcasts, and 
I think just coincidentally, a lot of those podcasts sway towards client-side technologies. And there's a huge movement now with a lot of client-side technologies moving towards the background, like with Remix that Adam was talking about earlier, but just all these new kind of React server-side rendering and like confluence of what's a CDN and what's edge workers and serverless functions and how it's all sort of all these client-side technologies are, are slowly creeping towards the back end. And it's like, it creates this sort of echo chamber where this is the thing that everyone's talking about and you, and you start to think like, oh, this is all the hot stuff. But then you forget sometimes because you're in this echo chamber that there's this huge world of people who do server-side programming and they're more than happy to have code compiled and, and execute on demand and pull from databases and not have to like, pre-build into static CDN delivery. I, I, I kind of forget where I was going with this. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess is I guess sometimes if you just listen to people who don't wear a lot of hats, then I think your view of the technology landscape can start to get very skewed in a weird mm-hmm. way. Right? Like if all you did was listen to React developers and them talk about server-side rendering and how do I do builds and incrementally serve cached assets like you could convince yourself that you don't even need to know server-side development and like database stuff and all this like battle-tested things that we've been doing for the last 30 years but then you start to talk to those people and they're like why would i do go through all that rigmarole of of rendering all that jazz when i can just have a server-side programming do it and like call it a day and you're like oh yeah that sounds really simple when you say it like that so i i even if you don't wear a lot of hats, I feel like you you have to be surrounded by people who either have a lot of different hats or, or with people who have a lot of hats on. Well, not yeah. just around them. It needs to be communication between them, right? Yeah, to yeah, understand yeah. their roles. Well, yeah, I mean, the landscape has changed, right? When we entered this field, you had an HTTP, HTTP server and maybe like some Perl scripts or something, mm-hmm. right? And now there's so much different stuff that goes into the average website and the number of hats that you have to choose from has grown exponentially since 15 years ago. So, yeah, I mean, I think the general thesis is yes, our work suffers for it, but sometimes it's worth it, I guess. Like Tim was saying, the, the number of hats that's too many is a personal number. The other thing, Ben, you were talking about going back to server side. I feel like I've been around in this field long enough. So I started programming in 1999 semi-professionally. I guess you could call it amateur. I was part-time working while like I was in high school. But I've seen a shift from like entirely server-side to so much client-side, like thick client, thin client, and, and going, mm-hmm. or I guess it was the other way around, thin client, thick client, and now we're going back to thin client. And yeah, yeah. It's, I feel like if I were a more insightful and reflective person... I would be able to tease something interesting out of that. I Honestly, I think this is both sort of a triumph and a fail of my own personality. I feel like I'm extremely good at living in the moment, right? I live now. I don't live 10 minutes ago. I don't live 10 minutes in the future. And, you know, there are times that helps me in, in not in just in technology, but also in personal relationships in you know, dealing with my kids and with stuff that happens to me throughout the day. And I, I feel like, it takes away from my ability to to reflect on my career, right? I've been doing this mm. for 22 and 23 and change years. 
And yeah, I mean, I was there for it all, but I don't know that I have any amazing insight to provide from it. I couldn't write a history book of it all. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. I feel like not to make fun of it's easy to it's easy to look at the the pendulum swing between the server side and the client side and the server side and what will I'm sure eventually be client side again and like scoff at it or make fun of it like oh that's what we were doing 10 years ago but they're doing it in such different ways and and I feel like I'm sure they're much better at the thing that they do than the thing that I do that looks like the thing that they do that uh, was it, a little too abstract for me <laughs> Like, like, yeah, I can write client side code and they can write client side code, but like, they're so much living in that world of client side code that like, I'm sure they're doing that much better than I'm doing it. But yeah, I think they also lose perspective too, because sometimes I listen to people talk on podcasts about, well, how do I render this thing on the server side, but then have part of it that it has to be specific to a customer. So that can't be static. That has to be generated dynamically through an API call. But then like, I don't know if the user's logged in yet. So I, I have to maybe show a login form or maybe show the app, but I don't want to give them a flash of the app, but then have to take them back to the login form. Right. And like, because they're struggling with all these problems where if you're doing server-side rendering, you're like, I just check to see if they have an active session. And if they do, I give them plop their custom code. And if not, I show them a login form. Like, like these are problems we solved 15 years ago. I don't understand what you guys are talking about. But yeah, I'm speaking from a g- great well of ignorance here. But if, if so much is client side, it makes me wonder. A significantly smart person who can open F12 developer tools can start messing around in, in your code and change it because it's all client side, right? That just scares me. I mean, I see people. We get tens of thousands of malicious requests against the application that shows up in the error logs all the time. And it is terrifying. When the log4j stuff started coming out, oh my God, the amount of variations of log4j things that we were starting to see show up in the logs was terrifying. I mean, thankfully, I don't think, because Lucy uh, was not susceptible to it, and we don't have anything else that's really running on a Java platform. But just to see it happen, like even if you're not susceptible, and you see it come through, you're like, maybe I'm susceptible and I don't know. Yeah, yeah this is right. terrifying. <laughs> you see you, you see the knocks on the doors. You don't know how many doors open, right? Maybe it's because I have a sort of a default slight, I'll say slight, negative opinion of CFML in general. What? <laughs> I said slight. The, when they were talking about how, so when Log4J happened and it was discovered that Lucy was not vulnerable, I felt, and, and this was my own personal feeling, but I felt like those statements were somewhat smug. Mm. Like, oh, no, we're fine. We're not vulnerable. And Because of OSCGI or whatever. Uh, OSGI, yeah. OSGI, yeah. And it, that end, because they're on such an old version right, of Log4J, right. the, the <laughs> vulnerability hadn't been introduced yet. That, yeah, that's nothing to brag about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And like, I, I didn't want to like be the guy that was like, oh yeah, you're not vulnerable, but that's because you're on, you know, such right, an old right. version. There's probably other vulnerabilities, but I don't know. I don't just know. can't win. I mean, the reality is, I mean, not to, not to tangent, but like all languages have problems. This, this is one of the things that I get super frustrated with in, in the programming world in general. People sort of being blind to the fact that the language that they use is basically just as terrible as every other language. Like all languages have so many problems and like you just learn to live with that. And I think you forget that the thing you're using, you're just good at it now. Mm. And if you went to another language and you didn't have that wealth of information, 
you'd be terrible. I mean, like I, I think every I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the the JavaScript WAP presentation. I don't know if anyone's yeah, seen that. Yeah, yeah. It's like a lightning talk. I can't remember who did it. It's a very famous guy. Is it the Lodash guy? I can't remember. Uh, Some no, it's not him. Anyway, he walks through like all the really crazy edge cases that you would never do on a on like real world program, but like oh, not intentionally, right, right. Like object plus string is number, but string plus object is string, and you're like, what? Like why would that make any sense? But like all languages have that, and people freaking love JavaScript. Like you can have a whole what presentation about a technology that people are jonesing about. And the reality is, is like all languages have that kind of stuff. So I I just get in my old age, (laughs) when I was younger, I'm sure I was so much more pro language, but like in my old age, I'm just like, all languages are terrible and great at the same time. And you just, you find the one that, that looks at you the way you look at it and, and you make beautiful things. So this episode of Working Code is brought to you by Backend Only Ben. That's Backend Only Ben. (laughs) <laughs> multi-universe back in only then <laughs> and listeners like you if you're enjoying the show you should consider supporting us on patreon it's the best way to help keep the show running patreon donations cover the cost of editing and recording and we couldn't do this every week without those things so we appreciate all the support that we can get special thanks to our top patron monty if you'd like to help us out you can go to patreon.com slash working code pod all patrons get early access to an ad-free version of new episodes and the after show are you staring angrily at your phone because you could have contributed something valuable to the conversation that we missed? Sounds like you should join our Discord so you can talk to a bunch of other like-minded coders and share your knowledge. Go to workingcode.dev slash Discord to join us. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember, your heart matters, even if you have a Schrodinger's fail. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.